Chuck Davis is one of the associate pastors of the church where I served in Austin. He remains there. Uh, he and Janelle are good friends. He shared a story with me a few years ago about his uh, dog. They have a little Boston Terrier, cute little dog, but like uh, maybe some of you have, he, this dog, if they ever left the door cracked open, uh, the do- dog would, you know, inevitably run outside and kind of terrorize the neighborhood. They had to corral him, find him, bring him back. And so they always try to, you know, rightly pay attention to the gates and the, the doors and that sort of thing, but great dog. And so one day they're running late from church and uh, scrambling around like maybe some of you have done from time to time and finally got everybody in the car. They're pulling out of the driveway and they're in the front yard is the Boston Terrier. So Janelle jumps out of the car, grabs the dog, opens the front door, tosses the dog in, shuts the door, and they take off for church. Enjoy a great Sunday at church. They go have lunch together and come back home about 1.30, 1.45, walk in the door only to find two Boston Terriers sitting there <laughs> looking terrified and confused. And uh, so it turns out they look, you know, a lot alike. And uh, unfortunately, they did not get arrested for dog napping. The neighbors forgave them, but it happens, right? Well, I want to talk today about two ideas commonly confused in Christianity that sound real similar. Uh, and if you mistakenly pick up the wrong one, it can really cause a mess. Uh, so I'm talking about the difference between Reformation and revival. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Judges chapter 2? Judges chapter 2, and uh, we'll begin there. As you know, we're looking at some overarching themes that show up in the book of Judges. I hope you're in community groups and studying uh, some of the, the judges themselves, but we see some important themes that rise here that we need to understand. When I say Reformation, I, I want to let you know, I'm not referring to Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation that took place in the 16th century. I'm talking about a general desire to work toward personal or cultural improvement under our own power. Let me say that again. When I, when I talk about Reformation, I'm talking about a general desire to work toward personal or cultural improvement under our own power. It's not a bad thing, but it's very different from revival. Revival could be referred to as restoration to life. It, it, it literally means to be brought back to life. And you, you know, it's no wonder why the word has been so important throughout church history. Uh, Because we long for the Lord to do a work in our hearts and in the church such that our lives are refreshed by the power of the Holy Spirit and his presence. And I think we can agree. We desperately need revival in our land. And so this passage becomes really important. I'll begin in Judges 2 and we'll look at a contrast. We need to start here because uh, people tend to confuse restoration and revival all through the book of Judges, and I fear that we do the same. Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, you look on as I read. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I had promised to your ancestors. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You were not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You were to tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What have you done? Therefore, I now say I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your side, and their gods will be a trap for you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. So they named that place Bochim and offered sacrifices there to the Lord. Now, I hope you look closely because this is really the last time you're going to see anything in the book of Judges that even resembles 
revival. Do they need revival in Israel? And they desperately need revival in the worst way. But the Israelites didn't really want revival. What they wanted was reformation. Over and over, what you see for the rest of the book is that every time things get bad, they long for reformation. Let me give an example. Turn back uh, over uh, a couple pages to chapter 4. We could look at uh, a dozen examples, but look at chapter 4. I want to read verses 1 through 3, the beginning of uh, the leadership of Deborah and Barak. Here's what it says. The Israelites, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. So the Lord sold them to King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Hashereth of the nations. And here it is. Then the, Lord, the Israelites cried out to the Lord because Jabin had 900 iron chariots, and he harshly oppressed them. Notice that the behavior of the Israelites lasted only as long as Ehud's leadership did. But I want you to see that they perceived the problem. They're crying out to the Lord because of chariots, not because of the evil in verse 1. It's a totally different thing. Uh, they wanted restoration. I don't think it's much of a stretch to say we can fall into the same trap, every one of us. And, and, you know, maybe it helps to ask the question this way, to kind of understand or discern what we're most passionate about, reformation or revival. Um, when it comes to your own life, what, what troubles you the most? Is it your bad habits or is it your lack of passion for the Lord? From a cultural standpoint, what troubles you the most? Is it social downfalls or is it the spiritual emptiness we see among our people, our neighbors? Which gets you more uh, burden? What, what gets more of your energy? Changing behavior or changing hearts? Well, there's a difference between res- reformation and revival. And the best way I know as we look at this text to fully understand the difference is to show you two lies that keep showing up in the book of Judges. Two lies that help to expose when we're really focused on reformation and we're not really focused on true revival. Can I show you those? Here's the first I want you to see. The first lie of the reformer, if you will, is this. Everyone else is the problem. Everyone else is the problem. In Judges 2, Israel has uh, yet again done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Their failure, their sin has brought them to tears. The word used in our text for wept there means wailing in grief or humiliation. They are broken because of their wandering away from the Lord. In fact, they grieve so much in that place. Did you see that in chapter 2? That they named the place Bochim, which literally means weeping. Contrast that with Judges 4. They cried out over chariots. They cried out over the enemy. They cried out over what other people were doing to them. In every single case we come across in Judges, besides Judges chapter 2, when they cry out to God, it's not out of sorrow for sin, it's out of sorrow for circumstances. And in a sense, uh, they're really upset about everybody's wrongdoing and not their own. Listen, here's how you can tell the difference. When we focus on Reformation, we grieve over over other people's sin. When we focus on revival, we grieve over our own sin. Remember, 2 Chronicles 7.14 is probably the most famous verse on revival, uh, national revival in the scriptures and uh, how it comes about. It says this, and my people who bear my name 
humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. Uh, A key phrase right at the beginning of that verse is what? It's my people. He's saying, if my people will do this, I'll I'll heal their their land. Um, It's very important because so many times we tend to say, oh, if only Hollywood would make better films and like things would get so much better. If only the government would enact this certain thing, then all of a sudden our problems would be solved. Or if only that other generation would just get their act together, then all of a sudden we could solve our problems. But reality really starts when we recognize that we have individual roles to play. And this, this works the same way culturally as it does individually. When we tend to look outward and say it's everybody else's fault that I'm in this situation. Revival doesn't come that way. Uh, I uh, took our, our girls to the movies years ago when they were younger. We went to, to see a, a movie and I'll tell you, I don't, we don't go to the movies that often, but when we do, one of my pet peeves is like, if I'm going to drop that much money to watch a show, it better be quiet in that theater. I, it drives me crazy when people start talking. Uh, can I get in an amen? Or, or, or heaven forbid that a, a cell phone goes off. Because I'm like, how many dozen announcements do they make before the movie starts? It says, please silence your cell phones. And lo and behold, you hear, eh, it just drives me crazy. So the movie starts. We have this crowded theater, a lot of kiddos in there, but they're being pretty quiet. And, and you know, we're not 15 minutes into the movie and a phone rings. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? So I'm, I, and, and even worse, the dude whose phone was ringing was rude enough. He didn't even silence. I was like, it just kept on. So I'm giving dirty looks to people in the row behind me and sideways. Like, what's the deal? You know, and this keeps going. It's driving me crazy. I'm just about to like stand up in the theater and say, hey, bonehead whose phone is going off. I dropped 40 bucks today to be in this room. Would you please stop? And then I remembered something. I had set an alarm to remind me to do something. And do you know if you set an alarm on your phone, it doesn't, it doesn't silence like the ringer does? It just goes off. And so I'm thinking, man, it's me. And then, then I had to be really smooth because I'm trying to figure out how to reach in my pocket and turn the phone off while I'm still smooth enough to act angry at the people around like, can you believe whoever did that, man? So I get my phone off. Yeah, it turned out I was the problem. Have you ever been there? And that's the reality when it comes to our situation. Like, we're the problem. We're the problem. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 4.17, the Lord says, for the time has come for judgment to begin with what? With God's household, judgment begins in the house of God, another translation says. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? Do you see? It's us. that We are the ones who are in desperate need of help. We're, we're being called to more than a change of behavior. We're being called to uh, something called repentance in the scripture. That's a word we use a lot, so sometimes we lose its meaning. Do you know the word repentance is used 969 times in the Bible? Jesus' first message in his ministry in uh, Matthew 3, 2. You know what it was? Repent. Uh, Jesus' last message to the church in Scripture uh, is in Revelation 2, 16. He called the church to repent. The message that God gives us today is to repent. What is it? It's a change of heart. It's recognizing our sin and our desperate need for a Savior and changing our mind and turning and going the other way, running to the Lord. Do you see that our grief begins to change and we stop saying, it's everybody else's problem. We recognize, Lord, I'm the one. I need you. I need you. And that's the first step toward revival. Do you see? We have to recognize that lie of the reformer. Everyone else is the problem. Here's the second lie that we see throughout the book of Judges. You ready? My way is better. 
my way is better. I mean, I know God has some good ways to do this, but listen, my way is, is really, really great. Um, when I say this, I'm implying two things. I have more answers than I really do. And second, I don't think I have to answer to anyone. Uh, let me show you this in the scripture. If you look back at verse 1 of chapter 2, I'm going to go back there as well with you. Here's what it says. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you. And then he says, and I led you into the land I had promised to your ancestors. And if you stop right there, he's talking about, I brought you, I led you. Those are leadership words. He's saying, I am your leader. I am your Lord. When you follow me, good things happen. But you keep rejecting my leadership, thinking that you're going to find freedom. And what you find is a whole bunch of heartache. You find out that self-leadership is way overrated. You see, God's ready to lead. The people are unwilling to follow. And they are choosing to be kingless. But the reality is what he's saying over and over in the book of Judges is you don't get to choose that. You're going to follow a king, uh, but you're following the wrong one. It never works when you say, I just reject your leadership and I'm going to do this on my own. God, would you just stop these other people from oppressing me because I can be fine on my own. Look back at chapter 4, verse 2 again. What happened to them prior to Deborah's leadership? They turned from the Lord. It says, so the Lord sold them to King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. There's a king. In Judges, there's kings everywhere, all over the place. They keep having to struggle against these kings. Let me ask you a question. Did Israel have a king? It's a trick question. You say, well, the kings came later for Israel. But they had a king. God was their king at this time. He was supposed to be their king. Uh, in this age, the Lord was leading them. But Israel didn't want the Lord to lead them. Israel didn't want other people to lead them. Israel wanted to check none of the above. In fact, this really comes to a head. You can just mark this maybe in your margins. Chapter 8, verse 22 and 23, Gideon has had victory. And listen to what happens. It says, uh, you don't even have to put this on the screen. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. But Gideon said, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That's what's supposed to happen, do you see? They have a king, but they don't want that king. They want to be king. In fact, in Judges 21, 25, the very last verse of the entire book, guess what it says? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. They said, I've I got it figured out. No, you don't. With Reformation, here's the difference. We're fighting to move from being oppressed to being self Led. We wage war against anybody who takes away our rights and our desires. In contrast with revival, we're moving from being oppressed by others to surrendering to God's leadership. You see the difference? We recognize we are not able to deal with challenges on our own. We, we're not good at being self-led, and we trust him and we follow him. Because as it turns out, we all submit to something. Do you see? That's, what, that's a lesson of Scripture. We all submit to something. We're no longer saying, hey, my way is better. When we submit, we're saying, God, you choose. And then life gets more free, not less free. Uh, when I uh, served in Austin, I had a car dealer in my church. And for a decade, I never picked out a car. 
Uh, he just picked out the cars for me. He'd say, I, I found this at auction. It was a great deal. It was a value. Uh, and so this is the time to sell your car. And so uh, just come over here. I'm going to trade keys with you. And here it is. And he saved me so much money. But in order to do that, I had to say, I, I don't, I'm not going to say, well, I don't want a red one or I want this car. He's like, he's looking at what the market says. This is the best deal right now. And, and it worked out really well. Do you see? Well, God's invited us to do the same thing. Just say, God, you choose. You choose. And then you actually find freedom where the world will tell you, no, I'm going to choose. I'm going to manufacture this thing. I'm going to figure it out. It's a change of conviction about who knows best. It's a change of hearts. You see, when it comes to personal change, do you think you can make it work all by yourself? Hey, listen, goals are great, but you will not overcome your addiction on your own. You will not straighten out your marriage through your own ingenuity. Let's talk about cultural change together. How do you think it will come? Social reforms and political involvement, they're great. But guess what? Hearts won't change through laws. And homes won't be transformed through government programs. It doesn't work. The reality is it's going to take the power of God to bring transformation to our homes and our culture. That's what he does. And you know what I find really ironic when you look throughout the Bible and at church history? Every time when people aim at reforms... They end up wanting. It like never works. Well, we try. We have all these ideas. It doesn't work. But every time in the Bible and throughout church history, when people aim at repentance and they aim at revival, God does a work in the hearts of people. And guess what happens? Social reform comes at the same time. So you end up, if you aim at revival, you end up with some reformation. If you aim at reformation, you miss out on both. Isn't that interesting? Over and over again, that's what we see. Incidentally, this doesn't just work culturally. It works in our own lives, doesn't it? When you say, you know what? I'm going to work really hard, and when I work really hard, I'm going to solve the problems, and then maybe it'll all work out. No, it doesn't. But if you aim at revival, if you aim at dependence on God, then God begins to change your behavior. I can't tell you how many times through the years I've had people tell me, well, I, I would love to come to faith. I'm interested in Christianity, but my life is really messed up. Man, I've got to get some things right. And once I get some things right, man, I would be really interested in coming to the Lord. That's not the way it works. When we run to Jesus, you see the Spirit of God changes us and transforms us into such that even our behavior begins to change. Incidentally, the ultimate example of this is salvation, isn't it? That's what we see in Scripture. If we try to behave to be saved, we fail every time. It's not by works. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast, we see in Ephesians 2. If we're saved, the Holy Spirit gives us the power to change. It's the difference between trusting in ourselves and trusting in a Savior. It's really the difference between saying, I can solve my own sin problem, Or saying, I can't solve my own sin problem. I desperately need a fitting substitute. In fact, we see this all through Scripture, that what happens when when we choose to try to figure it out on our own, to reform ourselves, it's this downward cycle that gets worse and worse and worse, just like the book of Judges does. Do you see? It goes all the way back, all through the Bible. Let me give you another Old Testament example. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 Verse 7 is really the first example of reformation versus revival in the whole scripture. Uh, Right after this fall, as the reality of sin's judgment is setting in, Adam and Eve immediately, inherently, do what? They go hide in the bushes. (laughs) It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They made coverings. They knew 
they needed to hide. Do you know you can go anywhere in the world from any background and people inherently know their sin. They know there has to be a covering. But, but unfortunately, they choose the wrong ones. They, there's a sense of guilt. Um, they can't remain out in the open anymore, so they cover themselves from a holy God. Uh, Hebrews 4.13 puts it this way, No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We instinctively try to cover our sins. Some people try to cover their sins by working really hard. Some people try to cover their sins by isolating from other people. Some people try to cover themselves by blaming someone else for their problems. Why do we do that? Because we're trying to find a way on our own to feel acceptable to God. We're trying to find a fitting payment. We're trying to find the fig leaves, the covering. Do you see? But not every payment will do. Some of you know I grew up in Lockhart, Texas, uh, barbecue capital of the world. We, um, we didn't go to the expensive, famous places. We went to a place called Chisholm Trail. And actually, Chisholm Trail, in locals just call it Floyd's. And I ate a lot of barbecue of Floyd's growing up. And we went in there. I'll never forget, he had a sign right on the counter that said, uh, in God we trust, all others pay cash. Like, okay, that's fair enough, right? And what he's saying is, hey, not every payment will do, right? And, and the same thing is true, you see, in Scripture. Not every payment will do. Like, you don't get, just get to choose a covering. You don't get to choose reformation. Uh, it takes more than that. And so we see this beautiful picture in the scripture of this happening because these are just the fig leaves of Adam and Eve, man-made offerings that don't measure up because they're based on our attempts to get to God. So we've got to set aside this lie that we can solve our own sin problem. And so instead of the fig leaves, God offers something better. All the way back in Genesis 3, God replaces the man-made covering with God-made coverings. Now watch this, Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. In order to have skins of an animal, what had to happen? Bloodshed, death, sacrifice. Recognize there had to be the shedding of blood, even way back then. Do you see? So God provided a blood covering for man. Now, of course, that was pointing toward a much greater need that we had uh, that came Later on. In fact, if you look back at our passage, uh, chapter 2, Judges 2, verse 5, remember when we looked at this example of revival? There's a tremendous contrast. There's something that happened there that you don't see all through Judges. So they named the place Bochum, remember weeping, and what? And offered sacrifices there to the Lord. Why? Because they knew there had to be a substitute. And that substitute was foreshadowing the ultimate substitute. Hebrews chapter 10, three through four says, but in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who has become the only fitting sacrifice. When we run to Jesus, now we have an opportunity to move beyond reformation, which will not satisfy, and experience true revival, moving from death to life. It comes only through the Jesus Christ, the, the, our Savior. Do you see? We long for revival, and it is what we desperately need. I heard a story that just fascinated me as I was studying this about a man named Dr. W.P. Mackey. You ever heard of him? I, I doubt you have, but he was a, a prominent physician in uh, the, the 1800s, a successful doctor. 
And he told the story later in his life that when he was leaving for college, his mom was concerned for his soul because he was so self-confident and self-assured and smart that you, you don't recognize your need for God. And so as a graduation gift, she sent him off with a Bible she purchased for him. And even in the flyleaf had his name inscribed in a special verse there. Uh, for her son. Well, he went off to school. He had way more important things to do than look at that Bible. And after uh, a few months, he says that, in fact, he needed some money for, uh, for a good time that weekend. And so he sold the Bible, got some money, and used the money. Just went on with his life and actually did quite well for himself. So his own ingenuity was, was uh, you know, working out pretty well. And he said until one day he was, he was serving um, the needs of a man who was dying in the hospital. And he said, there was nothing else that the doctors could do. And he was talking to this man, said, is there anything we can do? We want to make you comfortable. And the man said, I would love my Bible. Would you bring me my Bible? And so they had his Bible brought to him. And he just read through the scriptures until he, he passed away. So the doctor went in uh, one last time. And he was standing over this man. And he looked at the side table and saw that Bible. And he picked it up. And he opened it. And would you believe there is his name from his mom and that scripture. That was the same Bible that his mother had given him that he'd sold so many years ago, Dr. William Mackey. And do you know, uh, this doesn't, you know he, he went back to his office, he, he, uh, he bowed and he trusted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He experienced spiritual revival in his life. Now this doesn't always happen this way where he, you know, people go on with their lives and, and God works where they are. But in his case, he felt the Lord calling him to full-time ministry. He left his practice, he became a minister and a, a songwriter and wrote a number of hymns that, that endured through the ages and last even today. And do you know one of those I think is so fitting because it's a song that I've sung many times that's entitled Revive Us Again by Dr. W.P. Mackey. Isn't that cool? Because that's exactly what the Lord has done. That's exactly what the Lord wants to do in your life. Do you see? We think we'll be happy and satisfied if we could just see some reformation happen in our lives or in our culture. But the reality is that's going to leave us wanting and it's not going to last. What we need is revival. And that's what the Lord offers, you see. Would you bow with me, church? I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, but I, I wonder whether you'd allow the spirit of the living God to speak to your hearts right now in the quietness of this moment. Perhaps there's somebody who came here today who is watching through Kings and Online who's never trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. Why in the world would you hear the truth from God's Word and keep trying to manufacture reformation in your own life, trying to be good enough, when you know it's empty, you know from your own experience it doesn't work? especially when Jesus Christ offers everything you need for new life when you trust him. There's others in the room, you've trusted Christ. You know him. You're saved. But you keep coming back to those old habits and trying to figure it out on your own. When the Spirit of God is ready to bring revival. Just bring that before the Lord today. And so, Heavenly Father, thank you for the power of your word. Holy Spirit, thank you that you have the power now to do things that I cannot.
to speak to hearts, to call us to decision. I pray for the man or woman in this room who's never trusted you. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. I pray for the one who has been trying to figure things out on his own or the times that each of us have aimed toward reformation and we've settled for that and missed out on revival. Lord, revive us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.